Good morning, y'all. My name is Rich Hever, and I'm one of the other church starting residents for one more day. So um, this is this is my last Sunday. I told the, the first service that I think I got most of the pews out at Panera when I was by myself there writing this sermon. So <laughs> kind of embarrassing, but turns out I didn't get them most out. So maybe there'll be some of that a little bit later. Uh, but I'm really grateful uh, to be able to preach uh, on this day on my last Sunday with y'all in this uh, official capacity. And so uh, we all pray with me. God, we give you thanks uh, for this day and for this community of people gathered here uh, to create uh, the church and do your work in the world. And so God, now uh, may all the words of my mouth, all of the ideas and meditations and dreams and thoughts of our minds and our hearts be pleasing and acceptable and connected to you and the truth you want us to hear and experience even now. Amen. Mm-hmm. Clarence Jordan was a Baptist preacher in the uh, in South Georgia and he grew up in the 1920s. And uh, from a very early age, from the time he was a young teenager, he was always really bothered by the rampant poverty and racism that he witnessed and experienced all in his hometown of America, Georgia. And that holy discomfort with that injustice never went away. And so uh, he graduated high school and then he went to the University of Georgia where he got a degree in agriculture. And then after that, he went and got his PhD in New Testament uh, seminary in Kentucky. And when he was finishing up his PhD in 1942, he and his wife, Florence, uh, decided and felt called by God to go back to America, that's where they were from, and to create an interracial uh, Christian community. And these things are kind of uh, kind of in vogue now, like there's lots of things going on, but this was before the civilian idea. And so they went and they did this thing, and uh, just think about that for a second. It's 1942. And here's Clarence Jordan and his wife Florence going back to America's Georgia, not just Georgia, but South Georgia, to create an interracial farming community. And they called it Quinnia Farm. And uh, they knew that it was God's dream uh, for all people to be united across racial lines. And they also knew that it was God's dream for racial justice to reign. So they described Quinnia as a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. A demonstration plot for the kingdom of God, a place where God's dream would become reality. And Jordan frequently said that it wasn't like he just decided on his own to become this kind of person that would do this thing. He grew up in America, Georgia. He should have been a different kind of person. He didn't just decide on his own uh, willpower that he was going to muster up the courage to create this interracial farming community in South Georgia. He always said that it was only because he tapped into a higher power and his willpower, and he was able to do this work. The grace of God had transformed him and created in him the desire and the ability to create and to sustain this new venture, this farm in Georgia in 1942. So at the beginning of the farm, the residents of America, they thought the people that lived there were really weird. So like, it's strange, you all live together, you all farm together, you all work together. Really weird, but they didn't bother them. They just let them do their own thing, and the other folks did their, their thing. But as the civil rights movement ramped up and started um, to get more power behind it and started going, um, the violence ramped up in Columbia. 
So first it was about boycotts, right? So Koinonia uh, sold their products, especially cons, all over the, the, the state and across the country. And so uh, folks got uh, other people and businesses to boycott them. Don't buy anything from them. But then that quickly escalated to violence. And so the Klan was involved, often uh, bombing and using guns against this, uh, this community and against anyone who supported them. And so in the height of these attacks, when it got really bad and when, when they were, where, where things were happening constantly, people were being hurt and that kind of thing, uh, uh, Clarence went to his brother Robert. And he asked Robert, um, can you be, his brother Robert was a lawyer, and he asked Robert, can you be the lawyer for us? We need some legal protection around some of these things happening. And Robert had these huge political aspirations. He wanted to be a state senator one day and to do all these things. And uh, Robert, to do those things, knew that he needed to, to stay in good company. He needed to please all the, the racist white folks in there. And so uh, Clarence asked him this, and Robert responded, um, you know I can't do that, Clarence. You know that, that I have these aspirations, and I might lose my house and my job and everything I've got. And Clarence said, well, Robert, you know, we might lose everything too. And Robert responded, well, it's different for you. Why, Clarence asked. Why is it different for me? You and I decided to give our hearts to Jesus that same Sunday as boys. We walked up to the front of the church and we did the same thing. And the preacher asked, what did the preacher ask? Do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's what he asked. And what did you say, Robert? And Robert replied, well, well I said yes, parents, but I followed Jesus, Jesus just up to a point. Let's be serious. Let's be real here. And then Clarence said, could that point Robert by any chance be the cross? And Robert said, well, I follow him to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. I will, I will go with Jesus to that place, but not on the cross. Come on, Clarence. And then Clarence looked down at the ground, looked back at Robert straight in the eye, and he said, you know what, Robert? You're an admirer of Jesus. You're not a disciple. So you need to go back to that church you belong to, that church with all those other right, white racist folks, and you need to tell them, get in front of them here, and announce to the whole congregation, hey everybody, guess what? I'm an admirer of Jesus, not a disciple of Jesus. We've been in this sermon series for four weeks called Road Trip Through Romans. And we've been walking with Paul and talking about God's grand, big salvation project. We've named our sins, the things that are collective and, and, and systemic, the things that are individual, all, all the stuff, all the, the addictions that get in the way of God's dream for ourselves, for our lives, and for our world. We talk about justification, this truth that even when we're still a mess, even when we don't have our stuff together, that God rescues us and redeems us and breaks the power of sin over our lives, all we have to do is accept that we're accepted. And the strangest thing last week, this is where a lot of folks stop, right? And so it's, I've accepted, and I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, end of story, salvation accomplished. But on the other end of the spectrum, other folks want to skip over the, the primal experience of justification. We don't need the hard stuff. We just want to get to the part where we're talking about how to live like Jesus, and how to do justice, and how to overcome and fight oppression. So we have Christians on both ends of the spectrum, right? Some who want to skip over justification, and others who want to stop 
of justification. And perhaps many of us in this room, in fact, I'm sure that lean toward one of those ends of the spectrum at different seasons or points in our life. I know for me that in different times, I've been in one of the other camps. But I believe that if we stop there, or we skip over justification, skip over accepting that we're accepted, that we're missing out on the fullness of what God offers us in salvation. So Paul, the writer of Romans, uh, and so many other letters in the New Testament, he uh, refuses to be put into one of our camps. And instead, he preaches a both-hand salvation. So for Paul, we are justified simply by the grace of Jesus. Not because of our own effort, not because we justify ourselves or because of our works, but simply because of grace. And, according to Paul, that same grace is what propels us forward and launches us into living a new way, to living more and more like Jesus. Paul says this really clearly in another passage in Ephesians. It's going to be up on the screen. And it is, uh, for, by, I'll just read it. for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Put even more plainly, Jesus loves us exactly where we are. Exactly where we are. No caveats to that. No, no if ands, no, no asterisks or footnotes on that. Jesus loves us exactly where we are. And yet, Jesus loves us too much to let us stay that way. So we are made new, so we can be agents of renewal and transformation and justice in our world. But take notice, though, y'all, that Paul doesn't say, go do these things, go do these works to attain grace. Paul instead says that the, the deep experience of grace will cause us to do these things, will cause us to live differently. The author Brennan Manning says it this way. Only when God's love for us goes beyond, uh, from information in our head to a deep understanding in our heart, does lasting transformation come about. Or we transform through a deep experience of grace. So last week, Trey preached on assurance, this, this, uh, this, this idea, this experience of God's grace swelling up in us in such a way that we cannot be stopped. Now we're continuing on that trajectory. God's grace fuels this whole salvation project, what Trey's been calling this whole operating system, and so the only thing that can fuel this next part of the operating system, this next program, is grace. That is the fuel for sanctification. This next piece. Sanctification, let's be real. Who thinks sanctification is sort of like, uh, that's kind of a boring word. A couple people, some people are being honest here, everyone else is lying. Okay. <laughs> so sanctification can seem like this boring word and process, but it really isn't. So sanctification is what happens when we let grace run wild in our lives. Grace is always transformative, and, and we get dose after dose after dose of grace for sanctification. And through sanctification, we become more and more who we were created to be. So let's dive into Romans 6 and explore the concept more of sanctification. Now, fair warning, we've been here for a couple weeks in Romans, right? And we know that Romans um, can be a, a beautiful book. It's got great content, 
but sometimes it gets a little complex. So hang with me here as we walk through Romans. Paul begins chapter 6 with a question. And he says, basically, since sin brings grace, and grace is good, shouldn't we sin more to get more grace? It's a logical question, right? If A brings B, and B is good, shouldn't we do a lot more of A? And what Paul is doing is he's responding a bit sarcastically to two groups within the Roman church community, the faith community there in Rome. And there's two different groups. And one group is saying, we, re we really uh, like to take advantage of what Paul is saying because we want to do whatever we want. So we got this grace thing, so we just do whatever we want, want to do, whatever we like to do. There's nothing else to this whole salvation to do. And then he had another group in this Roman church, and they said, what Paul is teaching is so dangerous because it's much too free. But Paul, he dismisses this question of should we keep on sinning in order to get more grace? He dismisses it and offers a counter question. And his counter question is this, can people who have died to sin keep on sinning? Paul, as he often likes to do, begins to give an answer to his own question. Those who have committed to Christ can no longer have died to sin. Sin no longer has power over them. And this isn't like a hope for thing, or this isn't a thing that's going to happen in the future, but this is a thing that's already true. We've been freed from sin. So Paul elaborates on this point by launching into a discussion on baptism. And what he's likely doing is alluding to another story that much of his audience already knew, and much, many of them already deeply identified with the Exodus story. Some of you may know the story, right? It's from the, the Old Testament, and it's the story where God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And they were there, and they were in bondage, they were in slavery, and to escape Egypt, God sent uh, Moses to lead them out to the Promised Land. But to do that, the escape route ran through the parted Red Sea. And so they were in this land of oppression, slavery, and zebra freedom. And to get to the other side, to get to the place of liberation and freedom, they went through the Red Sea. And after that, God immediately led them to Mount Sinai, where they were given the law, these, these instructions of, of how to live well and how to live faithfully. And they spent the next 40 years or so, you know, wandering around in the wilderness and, and grumbling against God sometimes. But throughout this whole time, God was still leading them and guiding them, and eventually they got to the promised land. This liberating story of God's people being, being freed from slavery and bondage and brought to the promised land points to a greater reality. And that's what Paul is naming here. Because we at one time, at one time we were trapped by sin, and we were in the shackles of sin, and we had to live uh, out of our false self. We were addicted to all sorts of things. But free grace led us through the waters of baptism to find incredible freedom. And Christ brought the ultimate freedom, the new exodus, the, the liberation of the whole world, all the cosmos, every one of us, liberation from sin and death and corruption. And this freedom, this freedom causes us to live differently and head to a new place because we don't want to go back to the land of Egypt, right? We don't want to go back to the land where we don't have freedom, but we want to go to a place where we can experience freedom more and more and live differently. So Paul's answer to the question in verse 2, can people who are dead to sin keep on sinning, is a resounding no. Because when we say yes to free grace of Jesus, we've moved from one place to another. 
And we're no longer bound by sin because we live in a new way and can become who we were created to be. So Paul says, Jesus was died, buried, and was resurrected, and so are we. Because the power that brought Jesus from the dead, the power that raised Jesus to new life, is, is from the same God who gives us new life. And the only reason, the only reason that we can be rid of sin and live in new ways is because of the power of God. And in this process, we've been fused together with Christ in baptism. Fused together with Christ in baptism and the inward grace that that experience is about. And that fusion, that fusion is what enables the practice of sanctification, the process of sanctification. Sanctification isn't this thing that we do on our own accord. It's not something that we, we get enough skills and, and gifts mustered up and, and do it ourselves. It's not that. It's because we've been fused together with Jesus, even, even though sometimes it feels untrue, right? Sometimes it feels like it's not the case. But even in those times, we're still fused together. Clarence Sheridan, who I told the story about earlier, was always naming them. Like I said, he, he was always saying, I didn't start this interracial farm in South Georgia because I just had this grand idea and wanted to do this. He could have gone in many different ways. He had an illustrious career ahead of him. He was a brilliant New Testament scholar. But he chose to do this not because he just wanted to do it, but because grace had been forming him and preparing him and enabling him to do this work his entire life. Jesus went to death and came out of another place, out of the reach of death and sin. And if that's where Jesus is, then that's where we are too. And it sounds weird, I know it does, but Paul and early church and so many others throughout the centuries have been adamant about this point. So now, we're free from sin, but we know, we know for us, that it doesn't always go that way, right? It feels like sin creeps back in and calls us back to its old way. Sin creeps back in and calls us to live like we're not free, calls us to live like we're still in bondage. But sin has been trumped. Sin has been trumped by powerful new life in Christ. And because we've been liberated from sin, we've been moved to a whole new place. And we should reflect that in the way we live. We should reflect that we live somewhere new in the way that we live. It's kind of like marriage, or so I hear. When someone gets married, they may not at the altar immediately feel different at their core, right? So you know this. It's not like all of a sudden you just feel like a total new person. But you have committed and made a covenant with God and with another person to do life together. And so because of that commitment, you must conform the way you live and who you are to that new covenant. When justification happens and we accept that we're accepted, even though we may always feel it, the reality is that our lives can begin to reflect that we're accepted. When we're liberated from our addiction of sin, we're set free to live lives that line up with that liberation and freedom. We're set free to become who we were created to be from the beginning. That's sanctification. One day, that final resurrection will come, and we'll have complete and final defeat over sin and over death, but that future resurrection is anticipated already in our current new state of life. A new life has already been inaugurated in all of us. We forget this. 
We act like folks like we're heat memory loss, and we forget that this is the case. And so Paul's goal, goal here is to remind us who we are and to remind us that we can bring who we are back in line with our true identity. So Paul ends this portion of chapter 6 by reminding him of his back, and he says this in verse 11. Uh, I think it was a little bit different in our, in our version, but this is what he says in some version. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That third count is like a calculation term. So replace it with calculate yourself. It's like a, a bookkeeping term, or a figuring out the, 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 the figures. I may not say this. I'm doing the math. And so um, what, what happens in a calculation when you calculate something? Isn't that you produce something that wasn't true already, right? It's just that you look at you look at what's already true and you name it. So it's like two plus two equals four. I didn't just that didn't become true when I just said it. That was already true. And so what we're doing when we're calculating is we're naming and seeing the truth more clearly. The calculation is just so we can see what was true, what was the case all along. Richard Rohr uh, writes that maturing in faith is often about the growth and seeing, of seeing in new and more full ways. Because y'all, we don't have to live with blinders on. We don't have to live uh, thinking that we're still uh, in bondage to sin. Instead, let's open our eyes and experience and begin to live like the free people that we actually are. So, I know that was a lot. Marching through Romans, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, uh, writes uh, an illustration, I think, that helps me help at least get my head around some of these ideas uh, that Paul is talking about, some of these truths that Paul is talking about. So it may help us out. Imagine that you live with a terrible landlord. Some of you are like, I do live with a terrible landlord. <laughs> Imagine that's the case. And this landlord is someone who always comes to your apartment and just barges in without ever asking, Come, has his own key and just sort of marches in, no matter what time of day it is, with no permission. He's somebody who's always coming up to you and be like, I need more money. You didn't pay me enough. I'm changing the price. I'm upping it this month. Uh, your utilities were actually some crazy amount. That's kind of thing. Uh, he's always someone who's threatening to sue you if you don't meet his ridiculous demands. And so because you live in this place, it's just really an anxiety for you. Because you never know when you're going to come in. You never know if you're going to have to hire a lawyer for going to be suing you. You never know if you're going to have enough money for other things because he's going to take so much more of your money than you expected. This just produces a, a huge burden in your life. You're concerned that he might kick you out. But finally, one day, someone pays off that old landlord. Pays off everything you owe him. And cancels the contract and gives you a new place to live. A new place to live that's much better. And so you don't owe the landlord anything else, and, and you begin to live a, a little bit less of a burden life after a few days and a few weeks, and you're at this new place, and life seems a little bit lighter now because you don't have this huge worry. But then one day, one day, the landlord shows up at your new place. He beats on the door and wants in, he starts yelling and demanding more money, and I gotta have this, and I gotta have this, and you owe me this. And at first, uh, our, our reaction, our tendency, because we had done it so long, our tendency is to say, okay, okay, I'll give you this money. Just leave me alone. Here's the money. Our tendency is to revert back to the way that we used to live. But then we realize we've seen the paperwork, 
We don't owe him any more money. We've moved out of there. He no longer has any authority over us. We don't owe him anything. And so you may have to call the police to get him out, right? And call the police to get him to leave. But he may even return sometime. But the truth is that we don't owe him a dime. And once you fully believe that, you begin to live a lot more lighter experience. A person a lot more free because you don't have to worry about demanding more money. You don't have to worry about getting sued. You don't have to worry about getting kicked out. You're able to live a much more, a much richer life. Because we're no longer under the authority of that family. And he no longer has one claim over us or any of our things. That's what Paul is saying in this section of Romans 6. He's saying, remind yourself of the paperwork. Remind yourself of this new truth. Remind yourself that you don't have to revert back to your old habits in, in this place. Remember who you really are. Learn to see clearly. Learn to see differently. And learn to act on what's true, not on some false version of reality that's no longer true. The reality is we're freed from sin and death. And that must become more than an intellectual fact for us. But it must seep down deep inside of us and become real truth to us. Become a deep experience for us. Because we're no longer in the realm of sin and we've been freed for something much greater. Sin no longer has power over us. I don't know about y'all, but I'm tired of living like sin has any power over me because it doesn't. Or, or, or that old stuff doesn't have anything. We've been freed to live a new life because of Jesus, because grace fuels this new way of life and sets us free of old things that made us live um, so close off. We live in the realm of new life and salvation. Thanks be to God. And what God has done for us, what God has done for us, that is what fuels and inspires and serves as the stimulus for the things we do for God. We enter into the process of sanctification because we are no longer living that old house. We're no longer under the authority of that landlord, but we're no longer we're no longer controlled by sin, the addictions and the things that kept us trapped and that used to control us. Let's start living like we've been set free because we have been set free. We're free for a truly new way of life. Sanctification means uh, the process of becoming holy or holy made. It's the process by which we move from an admirer of Jesus to a disciple of Jesus, where we become so awake to grace that we begin to live more and more like Jesus. It's the process by which we become more and more who we're created to be, more alive, more fully human than perhaps we've ever been before. And it's not this static one-time event that happens, but it's this ongoing process that's ever fueled by the power of grace. Sanctification is about giving everything over to God. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist movement, and he talked about this, and not just in one way, but in two ways, of social holiness, or personal holiness, taking inventory of the parts of our lives, of ourselves, the stuff in our lives that gets in the way of God and God's dreams, the greed, and the racism, the perfectionism, and the fear, and the addiction to all sorts of things. But Wesley didn't stop there. Wesley also talked about social holiness. That this is about, about getting our world to a better place, 
about moving our world to a place uh, where God's dream becomes reality. Uh, the rampant injustice in, in our world, seeing them and getting rid of them, like white supremacy and unjust budgets and lack of resources for mental health and rampant poverty, the list goes on and on. It involves seeing things like remembering that one year ago today that Michael Brown was killed, 70 years ago today the United States became the only country that ever dropped an atomic bomb in Nagasaki, killing tens of thousands of people. It's about seeing those things and saying that that can't happen anymore. We're going to be the kind of people, the kind of people that are agents for justice in our world, and we're going to stop those things. Sanctification makes us into those kinds of people. Because the goal of salvation isn't to walk around talking about how great it is that we've been accepted. That's so lovely, Jesus. Sure, thankfulness is such a part of it. I am so thankful that I'm accepted and loved in the midst of my mess. But that grace also transforms us. Again, Jesus loves us exactly as we are and loves us too much to let us stay in that same place. The goal of salvation is to accept that we're accepted and to say, wow, I'm full of so much of, of, of love and birth and energy and power and aliveness. I'm full of these things and I want to be part of what God's doing. I want to be part of God's grand salvation project to be a participant, to live into it, to do and be a part of this grand thing that God is doing in me and in others and in our whole entire world. Let grace run wild through our lives and in our lives. When we were in the early stages of developing a mission statement for Urban Village, uh, one of the uh, choices, my personal favorite actually, one of the choices was Jesus, and there's translation, Jesus loves us, so we give a damn. Jesus loves us, so we give a damn. And basically meaning that we've experienced the power of grace in such a way that we're called to act as if we've experienced the power of grace. To live as new people and to change our world, Jesus loves us, so we give it in. That's a pretty good summary of salvation. Y'all have spent the past year um, as a minister here, as a church starting resident, and as a part of this faith community. And I have watched and been a part of y'all creating the most inclusive and honest community I have ever seen. I've witnessed y'all commit to justice in ways that make our city and our, our state and beyond a better place for all people. I've seen y'all feed gourmet meals to folks who are experiencing homelessness. See y'all deal with your addictions and your own stuff and the things that get in the way of you loving God and loving people. I've seen y'all tap into the power of grace in ways that are amazing, ways that fuel your lives through prayer, through small groups, through worship, through so many other ways. I've witnessed all of these things and so much more, and I can't tell you how much joy I feel and how much thankfulness I feel to have been part of this community and to experience those things. To watch them and to participate in them with y'all because y'all did it. I've never been a part of a church that gets it so much, that gets that Jesus loves you, that you give a damn. About what's going on in your life, about what's going on in your 
concerns about what's going on in our city and in our whole world, it's not perfect here, right? Things aren't perfect. It's messy, but it's beautiful. It's been so inspiring. And I feel so thankful to be launched out of this place and to be in your incoming from a community like So on this, my last Sunday, um, I want to say my hope and my prayer for all of you, for myself, really, is that we realize that this sanctification process is not over. For some of us, it just ain't warmed up. It just ain't started. So be open and get ready for grace to run wild in your lives. Our prayer is that we don't settle for some cheap version of grace that leads us to live a life like we can't even really want. But we settle for, we go after the grace of God that is already running through our veins, that we tap into the power that that brings, that we let grace transform us and shape our actions in the world and change the whole world. That we let grace Shape us into the kind of people that don't admire you, but that we let grace transform us into the kind of people who more and more every day come to Christ.